Well, if you have your Bibles, I ask that you would turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. And we're going to be in verses 1 through 4. Philippians 2, verses 1 through 4. I don't know if many of you uh, were peeking during the prayer, but I had a bug or something that was just harassing me up here. So uh, if anybody got the uh, entertainment from that, that's not excuse to peek in the future, but it is uh, uh, just a reminder that we're going to have some growing pains as we worship outside. Um, But it's nice to hear the birds chirping as well. Uh, Philippians 2, 1 through 4. As we, as we turn there, I uh, am mindful of a night uh, about a year and a half ago. Uh, my son was four or five months old, and Amanda and I were in that stage where everything is foggy. You're not sleeping at night. All the days are just kind of this perpetual, never-ending haze. But that evening, I had, I had everything lined up in order to hopefully be able to get a good night of sleep. I, uh, my mother-in-law had come to town to visit us, and she was going to handle all of the night duty uh, with our son, so when he got up, she would get up, and I was going to be able to sleep. Uh, I, and so I didn't have anything really scheduled the next morning early, so I didn't have to have an alarm set for early, and so as it got closer and closer to 7, 7.30, 8 o'clock, I, I was getting closer and closer to bed, so uh, once Nick got down, I kind of crawled my way to bed. And it was one of those things where you are almost asleep before your body stops moving as you get in bed. So I fell asleep into what I hoped would be a deep night of sleep that would last for 8, 10, even 12 hours. However, that's not what was in store. After what seemed like just a few moments, what was actually a few hours, the carbon monoxide detector in our home went off. And you know that loud, disorienting, just shrill sound. And so I was startled. I jumped up out of the bed and ran to see what the issue was. And thankfully, we didn't have a carbon monoxide leak. The detector just needed new batteries. And as you all know, those, those notifications about new batteries always come at 2 a.m., not 2 p.m. So I replaced the batteries and got all that taken care of and let everyone else in the house know that it was okay, nothing was amiss. But now I was wide awake. I wasn't going to be able to go back to sleep. So thanks to the carbon monoxide detector, that long night of uninterrupted sleep just wasn't meant to be. You know what's interesting about home alarm systems? Think about a security alarm or a smoke alarm or a fire alarm. They detect a, a visible danger. You know, a security alarm detects a possible intruder. A smoke alarm detects a fire or smoke. But carbon monoxide alarms detect a danger that you cannot see. And yet the danger from carbon monoxide can be every bit as hazardous as those threats that are visible that those other alarms show us. In the previous section in Philippians, in Philippians 1, 27 to 30, the Apostle Paul referenced outside opposition, even persecution that the church, uh, that Christ's church in Philippi was going to face for the name of Christ. He warned them about a visible outside opposition that they were going to face, an outside struggle that was coming their way. But now in Philippians 2, 1 through 4, Paul addresses that kind of that carbon monoxide, that more silent, 
more invisible threat that is just as, if not more dangerous to the church than anything outside of them. And that danger is a danger of self-centeredness and conceit amongst the members of the church. Follow along as I read from Philippians 2, 1 through 4, and hear this warning from Paul as he writes to the church at Philippi. He writes, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is God's word. May it shape us today. What I want to argue for you, what I want to show you from Philippians 2, 1 through 4, is that out of the abundance of God's mercy and out of the abundance of his work towards us, this must provoke self-examination and humility on our part towards one another. Let me say that again. Out of the abundance of God's mercy toward us, this must lead us to self-examination and towards humility towards one another. We're going to see this in two ways in this passage, or two points. First, we're going to see God's work in us in verse 1, and then our work towards one another in verses 2 through 4. So first, let's see God's work in us. Paul writes in verse 1, If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Paul writes this if, not as if it's a matter of uncertainty, but he's writing it kind of as like a rhetorical tool to, to, to argue, to bring his audience in on the fact that they are recipients of the mercy and the grace of God. Therefore, this must promote something wonderful within them in regards to their hearts towards one another. You remember, um, maybe some of you did this or you saw it on a TV show or movie. Remember the science experiments of like a volcano that would be sitting on a, on a large table in a classroom? And the volcano's there, and the student would drop some kind, like just a small drop of something in it, and the volcano would bubble up and bubble up, and eventually, like just just fizz out and bubble and overflow all over the table and even all over the classroom, all that. You remember that, right? Or, or just picture that. Paul saying, verse one is that chemical or that agent that drops into the volcano of your soul, and if it has hit you, then may it erupt in you and overflow into our relationships together as a church family. In verse 1, Paul has four different forces or elements that make up this drop into the volcano of our heart. See this in verse 1. He says, if there is any encouragement in Christ. The first one is any encouragement in Christ. And so Paul's holding Christ up before these Christians in the church in Philippi, and he's saying to them, if, you, if your minds are set on Christ, who has come, who has lived a perfect life, who has died for your sins, who reigns now, who, who, who has, through him, you have been justified uh, and you have been forgiven of your sins, and who is your, your great high priest, who is your intercessor, your mediator between you and God the Father, and who promises not only to reign now, but who will come back for his church and will reign for all of eternity. If there's any comfort in all of this work that Christ has done, as well as in all of the work of Christ's heart towards you, 
and his promise to never let you go, his promise to preserve you and to keep you and to guard you and to grow you, if there's any encouragement in that, then let this shape you in your heart towards one another in the church. Secondly, he says if there's any, incom- uh, any comfort from love. The source of this love that he references in verse 1 is somewhat up in the air with, with commentators. Is it, is it love between one another in the church? Is it love between Paul and the church at Philippi? Is it love between the church and God? That's what I think it is. I think it's love between the church and God. I think this picture here, if you look at verse 1, look at this. It's encouragement in Christ, comfort from love, participation in the Spirit. I think that's referencing the love of God the Father. And so I think what Paul is developing here is like a Trinitarian uh, uh, picture of all of God's work in God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, in, in the totality of the work of God in us to promote our love and work towards one another. So that's what I think is happening here. And so what Paul is showing us here is that um, love, there's, there's this love, this power of this love that exists between God and his people. And it's actually a love that you cannot know apart from God. This is a love from our creator. It's a love from our sustainer, our provider. The love of God is a means of our protection and our security, like a warm, safe blanket that keeps you protected no matter how brutal the cold, dark, snow-drenched nights of this life may be. We are held in the love of God. Paul says, third, if there's any participation in the Spirit. That word for participation is the same word that we get fellowship from, which Neil preached on last week. This idea of life together by the power of God and His work in us. So Paul says, if there's any ongoing work of the experience of the, Holy, of, of the Holy Spirit of God at work in your soul, and this will reveal itself, the work of the Holy Spirit is pulling back the curtain of your understanding of God's love and of his nature and of his power and all that he has done in you. So one thing the Holy Spirit does in our lives from when a person becomes a Christian all the way until they pass away and enter into eternity in the presence of Christ. One thing the Holy Spirit does is just continually pulling back the curtain pulling back the curtain on showing us more and more and more of the goodness and the grace and the power and the majesty of our God. And not only is he showing us more and more and more of God, but he's showing us more and more and more of God in order to show us, in order to do more and more work in us. That's what the Holy Spirit is doing. So Paul's saying here, if there's any participation of the Spirit, if there's any interaction of the Spirit, if the Spirit is doing this in you, you might behold a door and be changed by God. Then may this take root in your souls. And then the last thing he says in verse 1, if there's any affection and sympathy. This affection is a disposition of the heart. It's an inner resolve towards good. So affection, is, as Paul writes it here in the original language, is, 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 a, is, a, is, a, is a yearning of the heart. It's, a, it's this resolve to, to do good to others. And then he says, if there's any sympathy, which is the actual act of doing this good to others. It's the action that the affection produces. And so Paul's saying, if there's any affection, if there's any sympathy born in you by the power of the work of God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, if there's any of this in you, I want to fan that into flame. 
I see you, dear church, like a small fire uh, where you have this loving concern for one another that's just begun to flicker and kindling or in brush. And Paul wants to blow on it to push the flames of humility and mercy and love and graciousness within the body, push them outward and push them upward together. So the question we have to wrestle with is this. Is our experience of the work of God in us Is it like that volcano eruption that spreads like a wildfire? Or is it more like a match that is wet that we keep striking and we can't get it to stay lit? And the solution to this is, in one sense, to say, okay, I'm going to try harder. But one thing, to try harder to love and serve in humility others in the church family. But in another sense, what Paul is showing us here, the solution is to set our hearts and our minds more and more on the God who has brought us to himself and who sends us forward in love for one another. So we've seen God's work in us. But now let's see in verses 2 through 4, our work towards one another. Let me reread verse 1. So Paul, you know, think of this like an if-then if statement. So Paul's saying, if this is the case, then here's what needs to happen. So the if is verse one. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy. Then the then is verse two, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And then verses three and four give us further elaboration or application for verse two. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And let each of you not look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So keep in mind, Paul is concerned with the subtle, perhaps not even visible danger of self-centeredness and conceit that can breed disunity and division in the church. And the solution is he wants an eruption of the mercy of God spilling out of the hearts and lives of the people of God. So he emphasizes in verse 2, unity of mind and in heart in the life of the church. So Paul says, verse 2, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being of full accord with one mind. So where Paul previously gave this warning and exhortation about suffering that would come to the church in verses 27 to 30 of verse 1, Now he addresses humility and care for one another as the means of preparing for and addressing this. Do you see this here? If you go back and read the end of chapter 1 and now the beginning of chapter 2, you would see Paul says, it has been granted to you to suffer for the name of Christ. And now the way you prepare for it is to grow in humility and love for one another. That's staggering. In our corner of the world today, far more churches have been torn apart by internal strife than by vicious raiders seeking to destroy or to burn down church buildings or to arrest Christians. We are far more in danger of destruction by division in our hearts than destruction by some kind of physical attack that we might face. Yet how often do we get our hackles up about external what we perceive to be external threats and give more fervent attention to what is happening outside of our walls and what is happening inside of our hearts. 
Maybe the best way to be concerned about possible dangers from outside that we might specifically face as the church is to seek to foster a radical otherworldly like love for one another inside the church. Paul's heart for the church in Philippi and their unity together was so strong. He was gripped with this love that he writes that this care for one another. Look at verse 2. He says, you will complete my joy. This love is so strong, like the, the, like the love of a parent for a child. He feels incomplete if they are not doing well, if they are not growing healthily. I think this is a model for us of the kind of heart that he is calling us towards with one another. And yet that's a strange concept to consider that our joy is tied to the well-being of one another in the body. Now, it's not tied exclusively to that. But there's a means by which our joy grows and is nourished by seeing the joy of one another grow and be nourished in the mercy and grace of God. See, Paul is presenting a startling truth. That truth is that the key to Christian joy is found in taking attention off of self and placing your attention on the needs of others in the church body. Understand this. This is not some kind of like like verse 2 when he says, being of the same mind, same love, being full accord and of one mind. You might read that and think, okay, is this saying like some kind of robotic uniformity? Like robotic uniformity where everybody has to have the same taste in music, where everybody has to vote the same way. Robotic uniformity where everybody has to dress the same way. Robotic uniformity where, where there's no division, no, no disagreement, no anything. Everything just looks like, like it's just straight cut out of everybody from the same cookie cutter pattern. No, that's not what he's saying. Elsewhere, we see throughout Scripture that diversity in the body is one of the beautiful things about the church family. What Paul is saying, if we look at this closely, is he's not aiming for, uh, what he's saying is that the, the great impediment to unity in the church family is not differences of opinion in our minds. The great impediment to uh, unity and love for one another in the body is division in hearts. Do you catch that? If you were to take your, let, let me, let's think through this together. If you were to take your worship guide and a pen, like you've got your bulletin right now, and say you had a pen, and I asked you to write down what are some of the characteristics that you think of when I ask you to describe a healthy church. What, do you, what, what, what would come to your mind? Would it be robust giving, always meeting or even exceeding budget? Would it be nice buildings or nice amenities? Maybe not having to talk with one another through face masks? Maybe it'd be something like noticeable, visible, exponential growth in numbers. Maybe it'd be vibrant community service work, always engaged right on the front lines of a cause that we would be concerned about and be passionate about. Would it be great music or great preaching or even just simply the absence of conflict, like everyone getting along? These are good. These are good things that can indicate important things about a church. But here, Paul gives us one thing that he describes as being evidence of a healthy church. And that is a God-shaped unity of mind and heart amongst the church family. And what he's saying is that this indicates that the gospel of Jesus Christ has not only sunk deep in our hearts, but as it sinks deep in our hearts, it will spread out from our hearts. That's Paul's point in verse 2. Now he helps us to apply this point of being of one mind and of 
having the same love, he helps us to apply this in verses 3 and 4. He says the way this manifests itself in the life of the church is to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. It's startling to think that the church in Philippi was a largely healthy church, and yet there's this fresh danger for selfish ambition to creep in. So how does selfish ambition creep into the church? It could happen in different ways, I suppose, but let me offer you a few ways that it does. As Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Maybe wise to consider one way selfish ambition and conceit seeps into the church is that a pastor could start to use his church for his own personal aims or for the building of his own platform. He becomes concerned with reputation and fame more than shepherding the body or concerned with self-preservation more than faithful care and discipling. Another way that selfish ambition might seep into the life of the church is that a church member can have causes or desires that he or she feels are truly important causes that maybe even do a lot of good. But this person, this church member, starts to get worked up if they feel that the church does not fall in line fully with their conviction or does not support the cause of which they've given themselves to with the same passion and devotion. And this instigates discord with others in the church. The third way, another way, is that a church member could have feelings of superiority over others, even disdain for those whom they feel maybe just aren't as sharp as they are. Maybe, maybe if they were just as, as, as quick-minded as I am, maybe if they, if they were able, able to think critically and analytically as well as I could or able to see this problem a little faster, don't they realize how much of a gift I am to them and helping them to think through things? Maybe they can subconsciously feel a need to be heard or to be admired or to be trusted in a manner where they sinfully start to exert unkind authority over others. See, there's something that Paul is saying about our own human nature, and that is that we can be tempted to manipulate desires, our own desires. We can be tempted to manipulate those into selfish ambition. But Paul speaks of this selfish ambition and conceit and how we can use even good things like the church for these sinful inclinations of our heart. Now, the word conceit here is fascinating. It, it, it kind of seems rather simple to us, conceit. We don't want to be conceited. But, but the, the word here actually alludes to the definition for it is like an empty glory. It's, it's a hollow pride. It describes someone who thinks far too highly of themselves and they lack complete self-awareness. They're out of touch with reality. It's like the person who swaggers around all day, but they don't know they've got toilet paper stuck to their shoe. Or they walk around all day trying to boss people around and their fly is unzipped. They think that they're a lot more powerful than they are. They think they appear to have it together a lot more than they do, and they're actually kind of an embarrassment to themselves. Paul warns the church of this. The church is not a place to put yourself on a pedestal church is full of people who are constantly trying to get off those prideful pedestals in order to lift Christ high and put him on the pedestal. There's one pedestal in the church and Christ belongs on it. So what Paul would tell us here is that the most dramatic thing that you could do that I could do for the health of the church is to carefully examine our own hearts towards one another. And where our hearts might be a little bit stirred by this, even a little bit convicted over our attitudes towards others, 
Paul prompts us to seek to grow in humility towards our brothers and sisters in the church family. And as we make sure to preach a gospel message, let us also seek to, by God's grace, cultivate a gospel-shaped culture in our church. See, faithfulness to the gospel in the life of the church is not just believing the right things intellectually, but it's being shaped by these things we believe intellectually, being shaped by them into how we conduct ourselves towards one another. I've heard it said before by uh, an author, I can't remember who said it originally, but uh, the message of the gospel will attract people. The message of the grace of God is captivating to people. But a culture of the gospel, a culture of the grace of God in the church is what keeps people. So may God grow us in that together. The next point of application that Paul gives is in verse 4, and it builds on this point of forsaking selfish ambition and avoiding conceit and placing the interests of others above our own. Look at verse 4 here. So, well, actually look at the end of verse 3 and then end of verse 4. Paul says, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. So if selfish ambition and conceit is counting others as less significant than myself, Paul says, in humility, count others more significant. And then he says in verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. There's, a, there's something that's kind of subtle here, but we need to see it. He says in verse 3, in humility count others more significant, and then he tells them to look to the interests of others. Do you see how verse 4 shows us that humility towards one another is not indifference towards one another? Lukewarmness towards our brothers and sisters in the church family is not an acceptable state to our hearts. Let me say it another way. A lack of of selfishness towards others is not the end but a humble drive to serve the interests of others in the church is where paul is pushing us consider this with me as we consider our attitudes as we think through our hearts towards one another i think that it's wise to consider our relationship with god if verse one shapes uh uh our heart, our understanding of our relationship with God and then verses 2 through 4 push it out into our relationships with one another. Think with me on this. Our attitudes towards one another will be commensurate with our understanding of our relationship with God or of his attitude towards us. If I believe that God is cold and distant towards me, this is likely going to breed a cold, coldness and a distance towards others in the church. If I believe that God is harsh and ungracious, and always, always ready to knock me down, then I will manifest itself in a harshness and an ungraciousness and a desire to be overwhelmingly judgmental towards those in the church family. But if I believe and I know the abundance of God's graciousness and the abundance of his compassion to me, the, the, to me the greatest of sinners, then how can that not manifest itself in my actions and words towards those in my church family? Brothers and sisters, what we believe about God will manifest itself in how we act towards one another. And I want to let you in on something. We who are Christians... We're at one time harsh, ungracious, and inclined towards selfish ambition and conceit. And we still are. But 
when, when we were redeemed by Christ who met us in this despicable state and in his cross, he atoned for all of our harshness, our rudeness, our self-centeredness, our conceit and everything else that our sinful hearts were rooted in. Then when we encountered this Christ. Then he has changed us not only in bringing us to himself, but bringing us to one another. And what Philippians 2, 1 through 4 is, is an invitation to not just stand and observe uh, like, like you're standing over watching a river pass in front of you. It's not standing and observing the current of God's power and mercy and love flowing by. But Philippians 2, 1 through 4 is inviting us to jump in and allow the current of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the love of God as it shapes and changes and pushes us forward in holiness to jump in and experience it together as a body. See, we can look to the interests of others and we can do so with gospel vitality because of Christ who looked to our interests all the way to the cross. Christ is our model of setting aside one thing for the sake of looking to the needs and the interests of the church, of his people. So now as we live in light of Christ's work, how can we not do so with the mentality of verse 1? In fact, there's an implied danger of the fact that if we are not humble towards one another, if we don't have a, cha- a, a verses 2 through 4 perspective, then that possibly reveals that our understanding of verse 1, of, of the encouragement from Christ, of the love of God, of participation in the Spirit, of, of the roots of that affection and sympathy, maybe those actually aren't there. Maybe we bought a counterfeit. Now this is interesting. Because what we see is that God's Word calls us towards an attitude towards one another that can even be a little bit confusing. It can be a little bit bothersome. It doesn't tie our relationship with God to how we love one another. But it's saying, like the book of James, that our love for one another will be born out of our relationship with God. Now, it's possible that here gathered with us, you hear this example of Christ, you hear this example of love of God the Father, you hear this reference to the Holy Spirit, and you would say, I I don't really know that. And one way that I've been revealed that I don't really know this is I'm actually quite indifferent towards the church. I'm quite indifferent towards other Christians. I invite you to come and look upon Christ in faith. Come and look upon him and find life and come and look upon him and find his people, his family of faith, which comes alongside of you to walk by the power and love and mercy of God. So how do I actively pursue putting the interests of others in the church above my own? Back to us church family broadly. How do I do that? Well, let's think through our conversations and our care for one another. First, just a couple of points of practical application are helping us think through this. Consider our conversations of understanding of one another's just situations and places and stages of life. In light of all that our country has seen, perhaps take an opportunity to ask your fellow church members who are not white about their own experience and how recent events in our nation make them feel. And then just take time to listen. Take time to hear. 
Seek understanding and empathize. But then also, going, pulling beyond that, consider the beauty and the diversity of the church family uh, uh, in, in age and experience and in uh, just life experience and seek to understand and seek to grow in fellowship with those who are different than you. Seek to get to know the person that's a generation or two ahead of you or a generation or two behind you. And seek to get to know them in order that you might be a means of caring for and of shepherding and of, and of mercifully pushing them towards knowing and growing and delighting in the love of Jesus Christ. See, one of the beauties, as, as I thought about verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interests but also to the interests of others. One of the beauties of this verse and one of the beauties of the local church is that God has given us a church family that is a means by which he many times answers the prayers of the individual Christian. He's not called us to walk alone. He's called us to walk together. And he's given us one another that those who are weak or those who are strong might help lift up those who are weak. And then when those who were, who were once strong become weak, those who were once weak or are now strong may walk alongside and carry them along. He's giving us one another. And he's showing us that the means by which we work out this encouragement in Christ, this comfort from love, this participation in the Spirit, the, way, the place where we start to taste and enjoy these riches of the gospel of Jesus Christ is amongst one another. So as we consider coming back to life together, I understand that such actions, such conversations, such habits are very difficult in the quarantine, social distancing kind of environment. So let's resolve, months ahead, years ahead, we're just going to try to be mindful of these. And as God gives opportunity, we're going to pursue these together. That we're going to hear this, this warning from Philippians 2, 1 to 4, and we're going to hear this warning not only to, to give us caution against possible dangers that we can't see of division and disunity in the body, but may that warning also be a means through which God pushes us towards seeing the beauties of encouragement in Christ and of the love of the Father and of participation in the Spirit. For when we are engaged with one another and we are loving and ministering to one another in the faith, that is a means by which that fountain of God's power and His work in us is overflowing. And our souls are edified and grown and comforted as well. Out of the abundance of God's mercy at work in us, brothers and sisters, let us examine and pursue humility towards one another because, or not just because, but knowing that as we do this, we're just going to drink more and more and more of the abundance of God's mercy together. Let's pray together. Lord God, we give you praise. And we ask that you would help us to first of all reflect on Christ and on your love and on the Spirit and participation with Him. And Lord, help us to consider ways in which we need to orient our hearts together in the Gospel and spurring one another on in the faith. 
Help us to examine our own attitudes and, and hearts towards each other. To do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant. And let each of us look not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others, O oh God. And in this, may we present a dramatically countercultural picture of your love and of your goodness and of your power and that you bring people together who many times would have n- very few causes or very few issues that would bring them together or very few uniting factors about them. And yet they are united because they are united with you. And you have made us a family through Christ. And our hope is in you, God. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.